0: This morning's reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, found on page 1067 of your pew Bible. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Growing up and increasing and yielding thirty-fold and sixty-fold and a hundredfold. And he said, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, "To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word for God's people. May God add his understanding to our hearing of this word.
1: There was an elderly man I knew that was concerned that his wife of 50 years was starting to have some hearing loss, have trouble hearing. He was concerned, and so one night he devised this plan that he would go into the living room and get on the far corner of the the den from his wife where she was sitting in her her rocker and turn his back to her and give her a bit of a, a homemade hearing test, if you will. And so he goes into the room, stands in the living room in the far corner from her and says, Hey, honey, hearing nothing. It seemed to confirm his suspicion, and so he thought, I'll take a couple steps closer to her. And so now, standing pretty closely to the middle of the living room, he says, Hey, honey, still nothing. So he decides, I'll take another couple steps, and now he's only a couple feet from her, but again, still back to her, so she can't read his lips. And, she, and he says, Hey, honey, <laughs> to which she replies, What?! And she seems pretty agitated. And so he turns around and she says, I've said what three times now? (laughs) So it indeed wasn't the wife that was having hearing problems, but the husband. Jessica tells me that I'm often in that camp. This morning, church family, how's your hearing? How's your hearing? I think in the text that we're in, there's a main idea, there's an idea here that Jesus is making for us. It's a connection from our hearing, not just physically, but spiritually, to our heart. From our ears to our heart, there's a spiritual link that Jesus is showing the crowds that day. If you still have your Bibles open, keep them open. In verse 3, you see this real quickly. Jesus commands them to listen. It's an imperative. Skip down to verse 9. Jesus says, anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Verse 12, Jesus mentioned those that listen and listen, yet they do not understand. And then in verse 20, Jesus speaks of those who hear the word, welcome it and produce a crop, a harvest. I think there's a, a repetition here. There's a, a sequence that we're meant to see in Mark's gospel. So the question for us this morning, I think, is those studying the Word of God, studying Christ's teaching, some 2,000 years later, is, "How is our hearing? How are we listening? Are we hearing? And to see why this is important, I think we need to circle, bit, circle back and do a bit of recap to remind us where Mark's been. Because I think, I think if anything I've seen in Mark's gospel as we've been studying through it is that Mark is he's weaving together a story for us. It's not just a random uh, group of stories that he's putting together, but he's making an argument. He's building an argument for us as to who Christ is. And remember, Mark's getting us to the cross. It's the, the fastest paced of the Gospels. But when we recap and look at where Mark's been, it makes perfect sense that Mark puts this teaching of Christ, this parable, where he puts it. So to this point, Mark's shown us that the response to Jesus has been drastically varied. If you think about it, think back with me. We won't walk through every, uh, every pericope that Mark gives us, but uh, we're first met with disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that receive Christ and his word with enthusiasm. They immediately follow him. They want to see this who, the, the Son of God who is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, that's come to take away the sins of the world, and they follow him. They follow him even, even when his teachings are hard or difficult. Then you, you go a little further into Mark's gospel and you see the plot of the Pharisees and the Herodians to destroy Jesus, the text says. Two opposite ends of the spectrum to responding in Jesus, to Jesus. The scribes who we just saw call Jesus a blasphemer and attribute his works to Satan himself. It says that he's possessed by Beelzebub. And in between these extremes, these, these extremes on the spectrum, you have all sorts of responses in between. You have the skepticism of his own family, his own relatives that think he's out of his mind. You have the religious elite, the leaders uh, in in the temple, in the synagogue, that would uh, be puzzled that he has a lack of commitment to their fasts and their uh, Sabbath regulations. They're confused by this. Why is this man considered a holy man, a rabbi, and he he doesn't even keep the fasts or Sabbath like we do? And then you have skeptical enthusiasm, I think, from the crowds. They're not believing, they're not trusting Jesus is Lord, is the Son of God, but they are attracted to him for what he can give them. There's some enthusiasm because they think he can heal them or cast out demons for their family. And so there's a false sense of enthusiasm. And so all these varied responses to Jesus, and all of these responses are to the same message (laughs) Jesus is not picking and choosing and preaching a different gospel when he goes to a different region of Galilee. It's the same message, the same set of acts that they're seeing, the same miracles that they're seeing. So then the question is, how is it that so many people are responding so differently to Christ? You can imagine that question coming up even for the disciples as they're following him. If the gospel is good news, Jesus, that's what the word means, euangelion. If the gospel is good news, then why is it not universally accepted and embraced? How is it that others aren't following you like we are, committing our lives to you? How is it, again, even just last week, we, we see this, these opinions of Christ develop. How is it that the demons are rightly confessing Jesus to be the Son of God and that the religious leaders are calling him Satan or possessed by Satan? How can there be such different opinions of Christ? I think in light of the text last week, if you remember where we were at, Jesus' own family comes from Nazareth because they think that he's lost his mind. The religious leaders say that he's possessed by Beelzebul. In light of last week's text where we see different opinions about Christ, the question this morning, why are there so many different opinions about him? Why is it, Mark, as you're telling us this story, are there so many different opinions of Christ? And that's the question I think that Jesus answers for us in the text this morning, so to this point, our Mark has talked a lot about Jesus' teaching ministry. He teaches as one with authority, unlike we've ever seen before. But we've not seen a lot of content from Jesus' teaching. We've seen him uh, proclaim the gospel is at hand, repent and believe the good news. But to this point, we've not seen any lengthy section of Jesus' teaching. That's where Mark goes this morning. We get the first uh, pretty good-sized chunk of Jesus' teaching. So four questions this morning, not necessarily points, but four questions I think that guide us in the text. And we'll answer the question, I I hope, uh, why so many different responses to Jesus? Why are there so many different opinions of this one Jesus? And I think we do that for us this morning by asking, how's our hearing? Hearing the words of Christ, seeing the words that Mark's recording for us in in the word of God. How's our hearing? How are we listening to the gospel and the word this morning? So question number one. What's the background for what Jesus said? What is the background for what Jesus said? Look at verse 1 and 2. Again with me. It says again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd gathered uh, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. So just to back us up and remember, Jesus has just had one doozy of a day, right? If you remember his day from last week, mother and brothers come from Nazareth. Again, a full day's journey by foot to take him forcibly back home because they think he's crazy and he's lost his his mind and they don't want him to hurt himself or their family name. And then so on top of that, he's got this family issue going on. Those that he loves and he's grown up with, those that have raised him, Are concerned for him, but also in addition to that, he's being accused by the scribes of being in league with Beelzebul. They're saying he's possessed by the demon of all demons, Satan himself. And on top of that, he's got these crowds, this mass of people, this popularity with the with the crowd, such that they're literally causing or at least threatening physical harm. Remember last week, he's missed meals. A big deal in that day. Before that, he has a, a getaway boat ready so that as the crowds are pushing in around him, it says that the text they were, they were concerned it may crush him. So this is the scene that, that Christ's day has been. And now that afternoon, uh, Matthew 13 shows us, again, Mark doesn't make this clear, but Matthew 13 shows us that this is the same day. That afternoon, he left the house in Capernaum that he was staying in, and he goes down to the shores of Galilee to preach. Something that's very familiar for Christ should demonstrate to us the importance of the word if Christ is continually preaching the word to them the gospel to them how dare we say that it get older that we graduate beyond the gospel look at verse one and two because they give us the setting the crowd is so great uh, so large that Jesus has now taken his getaway boat and he's made it his pulpit he's out in the boat and he's facing the crowd on the land and he's preaching he's teaching them and Jesus surveys the crowd, as Jesus scans the crowd that day, and uh, many of the commentaries will say this was probably the largest to this point that he had ga- gathered in Galilee to hear him. And as he's gathered this crowd and he's preaching, the Galilean sun is setting behind them. He's certainly aware of the diversity. He knows as God what's going on in the hearts of men and women in front of him. He's aware of the, the, the range of hearing that's taking place, the range of understanding and opinion that's being formed. He understands that there's a the mystery of the kingdom that he's come to proclaim and that's being worked out in human hearts in front of him in different ways. That not everyone's taking in the word in the same way. He's aware that some were coming to faith in Christ and him being the Messiah while others were being hardened in their unbelief. And that's happening simultaneously. And verse 2 states that he was preaching to them in parables. So I think the question for us then is, what are Parables. Why is it that Jesus utilized this method of teaching? And maybe you guys, if you've been raised in church, have heard the answer. The, a parable is an earthly story with heavenly meaning, right? But I think we need a bit more explanation. I think we need a bit more understanding. I think that's helpful. But uh, Danny Aiken in his commentary, gives us eight ways that we can describe or talk about parables. And I think it's really helpful. And so uh, I'll try to move a little bit slower in giving you these eight. In case you want to make shorthand notes, I'm happy to give them to you later. If it would be a help to you. But number one, a parable is, uh, provides insight into the nature, uh, the coming, the growth, and the consummation of the kingdom of God. Number two, parables are designed to be provocative and surprising. They should catch you off guard. They certainly did in that day and they should for us as well. Number three, parables are used to stimulate thinking and cause the hearer to contemplate what they're hearing. Number four, parables use everyday objects, events, and circumstances to illustrate spiritual truth, and usually with a new twist. Number five, parables reveal more truth to those with receptive ears, and they hide truth from those that do not have receptive ears. Number six, Parables make up 35% of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Of all that Jesus teaches, 35% would be in the form of parables. That's significant. Number seven, parables usually, but not always, focus, focus on a single truth. And so we should not try to allegorize them and make every detail in the parable connect to something. Does that make sense? I think we get in trouble when we try to make every detail in a parable stand out and connect to something. That wasn't their point. And then number eight, parables in the gospels ultimately draw attention to Jesus as God's Messiah and call us to make a personal decision concerning him. So a little bit more about parables there. There, That's what Jesus is doing. That's how he's teaching. And so I think it's right for us to understand and try to see how he's utilizing this method of teaching uh, in his preaching ministry that day beside the sea in Galilee. And so we have our background. Jesus is teaching from a boat. As he looks out on the crowd that are gathered, a huge crowd, various responses, and he knows that, and he's listening, they're all listening to him teach in parables. So question number two, what did Jesus say? Look at verses three through nine. And in his teaching, he said to them, "'Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell along the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil.' And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Another seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. So we have in these verses what's normally called the parable of the sower. Many of your Bibles, the heading in that section of, of, the, of the text probably says the parable of the sower. But I think it's a little bit more accurate to call it the parable of the soils. That's really what it's about. That's what Jesus is teaching. And there's a, there's a variable here and it's the soil. So the seed is the word of God. That's clear as we hear the explanation from Christ. And it's a wonderful symbol for the, the power and the potential of the word of God. Within every seed of the word, there is infinite potential for life and for growth and for regeneration. And so Jesus gives them this illustration. And in that, the seed is the word, the gospel that he's proclaiming. The sower is Christ. Or any other person that would uh, put forth God's word, uh, whether in preaching or personal conversation. An exchange is made. And uh, the the sower is the one that would take the word of God and give it to others. In this parable, it's, it's Christ. The soil that's the variable in the text. In the parable, the soil uh, represents varying conditions of the human heart. That the human heart would, would receive the seed, which is the word, in a different way as it's, as it's tossed, as it's sown. The sower hurls the, some seed and it falls on the roadside and the bird flutters down and steals it away. He hurls it again and it lands on a rocky soil where it quickly sprouts, but only to wither under the Palestinian sun. The sower throws it again and it falls among thorns where it grows up, but it's choked out and it can't grow because of competing bushes. And then again he throws it and this time it falls on good soil where it multiplies 30, 60, and 100 times the end. The parable concludes. Jesus' parable is teaching there. It's finished. And then this statement in verse 9 He who has ears, let him hear. And so Jesus is God's word, God's ultimate communication. And as he's standing there that day and he's teaching them about these soils, it's not about agriculture. He's not teaching them about farming. And every fiber of his being, every fiber of the Son of God, desired and longed for his hearers to comprehend and to understand the gospel, that he is the Messiah, that he's come to save his people from their sins. Yet, not everyone that day had ears to hear. And that's the admonition you hear from Christ. He who has ears, let him hear. How's our hearing church family? Some of his own followers, we will see, were in the dark themselves. They didn't understand. They didn't get what Jesus was talking about. And so we see their confusion. We see their question in verse 10, which leads to our third question as we're walking through the text. Why did Jesus say it like that? Why did Jesus say it like that? Number three, look at verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. These verses are sort of an interlude between the parable Jesus has just explained about the sower and the soils, and the explanation of the parable, which he's going to get to. And the twelve are sitting around him with some other followers, and they're, they're actually wanting to know more. They're actually There's a longing and a desire from the twelve about why Jesus is speaking in these parables, and they're, they're a bit confused. And so in his answer, again, directed at the twelve, those apostles that have given their lives to Christ, those around him that are wanting and are hungry for more teaching, more understanding of the word, for those, his teaching... It wouldn't fall on deaf ears. They would be granted access and insight into the secrets of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom that he's been uh, proclaiming. They would understand. But for those outside, those unbelieving, those rejecting the truth of who Christ is, they'll get no explanation, but only more parables. And you'll see this unfold as we walk through Mark. Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10. And he does this to drive home the point and to demonstrate what he's been proclaiming, that he is the Messiah. See, Isaiah 6, 9-10 was talking about this incident, this time when the Messiah would come and this is the way he would teach. And then you have in verse 12, again, that, that quote from Isaiah 6. They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What's Jesus' point? It's this. Just as the sun that hardens the clay also melts the wax... So the word of the gospel offends the resistant and rebellious. It offends those who are rejecting the truth of who Christ is, while at the same time it enthusiastically is received by those that are believing, that are receptive. The same sun hardens clay and melts wax. The same word of God, the same gospel truth, infuriates some, while incredibly exploding into affection the heart of the one who's believing. The same son, the same gospel has that effect. And this is clear in Matthew's account as well. Matthew 13, the same, same teaching, verse 12 and 13. Jesus says, For to those who uh, has more, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one that has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor understand. It's not those that are unbelieving and outside of Christ are denied the possibility of belief. He's not saying you, you can't believe upon Christ and see him as Messiah. But if they persist in their unbelief, if they continue to reject the truth of who Christ is, again, this is on the hills of talking about the unpardonable sin, the rejection of Christ. If, if they continue in their unbelief, they will receive nothing as far as Revelation is concerned. They will continue, and even the text says, have it taken away from them. So application for us, I think, this morning, church family, love the Word. Love the Gospel. Hear the Gospel and let it stir your affections every time you hear it. If you're getting satisfaction and understanding out of God's Word, you can trust that this is, the text is talking to you in this way this morning. He's revealed Himself to you. Be satisfied in His Word. Be content in the way He's revealed Himself to you. Love and devour the Word. And refuse the Word. And that understanding, even what little understanding you have, will be taken away. I think you see this principle in our physical lives as well. When I was 18 years old, I had a motorcycle wreck. I broke my leg and it was in a cast for a long time and I had to have it elevated on a, in a, on a couch or in a bed. After I was able to get the cast off, my, my calf muscle had shriveled up, up to almost nothing. I had to learn to use it again and walk again. It was a long time before I could be active or uh, play sports again. That's so what happens when you don't use it. Same thing intellectually. If you learn a language like Spanish, did in high school, didn't use it. Go down to Cuba or to, to Miami to meet Jessica's Cuban family. And they're all speaking Spanish. And I'm going, man, I wish I could remember what I learned in ninth grade. I'd love to have a conversation with Jess's grandma. I couldn't recall it. I didn't use it. So I lost it. And I think this same principle is spiritually going on as well. What little bit you have will be taken away if you continue to reject Christ and refuse to listen to the word of God. If you continue to disbelieve. What a sobering reality for us that would come to a worship service like this week after week and hear the word of God. You go to Sunday school classes and you hear teaching on God's word. And week after week you've heard the gospel and you, you don't respond to it. How's your hearing? Hebrews ten twenty six. I think the writer of Hebrews gets at this same idea. Hebrews 10 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Are we persisting in unbelief? Are you yielding to the word of God daily, trusting his word as authority for your life, trusting the gospel is the only news of salvation for us? If we repeatedly hear God's word and refuse time and time again, there will come a time when we not only will not respond, but cannot respond. Our hearts have grown hard, our hearts have grown cold, and the word of God is nothing to us. Now Jesus, along with his followers, along with the twelve apostles and those that are following, wanting more, more teaching from Christ, after having made this sobering pronouncement about why he teaches in parables, he graciously explains the parable to them. This is grace, that he wouldn't leave them in misunderstanding, but that he would explain what he means. Friends, it's grace to us this morning that we have the word of God. He's not left us ignorant or confused about eternity and salvation, but he's given us his word. So that leads to our fourth question. What did Jesus mean when he said that? He gives us the explanation of his parable, starting in verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And so Jesus is going to explain the parable. We're about to get to that. You've already heard it read this morning. But he begins with a little bit of mild chiding. These words that you've just heard are essential. They're foundational. They're absolutely necessary for knowing Christ and following Christ. And he says, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand future parables? This is not just some little tangent or side note or rabbit trail. This is fundamental for the disciples. And then he proceeds by explaining the four souls. Number one. Some hearts, the soul of some hearts is hard. Look at verse 14 and 15. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So farmers in this day, their fields in Palestine were often long fields with long rows, very narrow. Often winding, not as straight as you would see in our day. And then they would have little paths uh, or roads that would dissect these fields so that you could navigate them. And these paths would often get as hard as pavement, as hard as asphalt. As people walked along them or the hooves of animals beat down upon these paths or carts, wheels rolled over them. And so these seeds, when they're thrown uh, out onto this type of soil, they just bounce along this pavement. And they're there on top of this hard soul for wind to carry wherever they will, or in this case, for a tasty treat for passing birds. And this is what Christ explains. These hardened paths, this soul that's become packed and hard because of transportation on these pathways, it's like a hardened heart, Christ says, who hear God's word, yet their own busyness their own comings and goings, the frenzy of their own life, the concerns that they have and the busyness that they're keeping have hardened their hearts. They've grown cold and non-responsive to the Word. Nothing of God's truth moves them. They hear it as if nothing happens and there's no interest in God whatsoever. When the worship service ends, they close their Bible and their ears and their eyes as well to the things of God. Let this be a warning, as it was to the people in this day, as it was to Christ's hearers originally. Let this be a warning for us in our day as well. If your life is so busy that you're spending no time reflecting or contemplating the claims of the gospel, then friends, give heed to this text. Are you so busy this morning that your heart has not considered or even given a second thought to spiritual matters in eternity? Why in the world would we consume ourselves with lesser things, things that will end when we have an eternity that we must be considering and giving thought to, what can we know this morning? Well, those that are unstirred by the word, for those that have hearts like this soul that's hardened and, and, and are not reach, uh, receptive of the word of God, then Satan is absolutely waiting. That's what Christ would be teaching us in the word this morning. He's giving us a glimpse into spiritual matters, spiritual warfare. That for those that have hard hearts, Satan is waiting, fluttering like a bird. Chirping with excitement. Waiting for when he can sweep down and snatch away the word that's been heard. That it would go in one ear and out the other, as we would say today. That because of our hardness of heart, the word has no effect in our lives. How's your hearing this morning, friend? Is the word having an effect in your heart? Don't harden your heart. Consider the words of Christ. And often this ground needs to be broken up. As a farmer would with a tiller. Take and cultivate the ground and break it up so that it would become fertile. This ground needs to be cultivated for receptivity. You need to be hearing the Word of God and yielding yourself to it, even when you don't feel like it, so as to not grow cold and hard to the Word of God. Often Christ uses suffering in our circumstances to make us tender and to cultivate a hard heart. Can you see times in your life when God's done that? He's been working in and massaging in different circumstances in your life to draw you to himself. Don't grow hard this morning. How's your hearing? Second soil. Soil of some hearts is shallow. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. In Palestine, at this time, uh, to to this day, much of the land there is only a a couple inches, three inches of soil. And that's uh, got a a layer of of bedrock underneath it, limestone. And in these type places, I think it's what Christ is describing the seed falls, the warm sun uh, heats the seed, and it begins to sprout. And it grows up and it it appears, there's there's evidence quickly that there's growth. It appears that it's going to be a, a young, healthy plant. But as the sun beats down upon it, the plant withers and it begins to die because there's no root system. The bedrock that it's ran into, the shallow soil that it's planted into provides no nutrients for growth, no protection or root system. And so it begins to wither and die. How many times do we see this happen in church? A young man comes and makes a, a startling profession of faith in Christ. He gives his life to Christ seemingly. In a few weeks, there's no one that can shut him down. He's talking about it everywhere he goes. And, and in every, every, every place in the community he goes, he's sharing with everyone he can about his walk with Christ. He, in small groups or Sunday school, he dominates the discussion. No one can get a word in because he is, is, is constantly talking about what God's doing in his life. And then it begins to turn into a situation where he begins to uh, rebuke or even reprove other Christians for not being as sold out as he is. And he's wanting to put himself on display and how much he's grown with Christ. And then a tragedy comes and he breaks his leg in a car wreck and totals his uh, muscle car. And his, on top of that, his girlfriend breaks up with him because she doesn't want to date a guy with a broken leg and a, a, a totaled muscle car. And So then all of a sudden the circumstances change and he falls away. He curses God. He hates the church. He can't stand this girl anymore and and her religion. Well, the problem is he he experienced some shallow emotional response to Christ. But it never penetrated his heart. It never penetrated his intellect and his will. And when affliction came, when circumstances changed and suffering came, there was immediate rejection. He no longer followed after Christ. He no longer had a love for the Word of God. He never was, was receptive to the Word. this is where a lot of the enemies of the faith come from. Atheists or agnostics that would be uh, opposed and hostile to the gospel oftentimes have had some type of emotional uh, response. They've tasted something of the power of God. But it wasn't true conversion. It wasn't true new birth. It wasn't regeneration of the heart. And so when they come into conflict, when they come through times that are, are unfortunate, and certainly we live in a fallen world and there are unfortunate circumstances that we all go through, They become bitter and hostile to the truth. They hate God. They hate his word. Mark Dever says these are quickly quickly green and then quickly gone at the first sign of conflict. And I think the the text makes it clear that the conflict is not just unfortunate circumstances, but it's actually uh, due to the word. (laughs) You see that. They endure for a while, but then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. So we must ask ourselves, when we are laughed at or pointed at or made fun of for what we believe, will we fall away because there's no root. We fall away because our hearts are not receptive to the word of Christ and trusting his word. How's your hearing this morning? Third soul, the soul of some hearts is distracted. Look at verse 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus explains to them that the thorns are the cares of the world. They're the things that are distracting us and and pulling for our attention. And this portrays a divided heart, the heart divided by irreconcilable loyalties. The heart makes some gestures towards Christ, but at the same time it's moved by the cares of the world. Literally in the text, the distractions of this age. The things that would distract us and draw us away from Christ. And because of these competing desires, there's no room left in this person's heart for spiritual concerns. The deceitfulness of riches, the text says. Or in our day and age, the keeping up with the Joneses has distracted them. It's like the, uh, the girl that the young man once rep- proposed to. Young man comes before this young lady and says, darling, I want you to know... That I love you more than anything else in the world. And I want you to marry me and be my wife. And he goes on. He says, I'm, I'm not rich. You know, I don't, I don't have a yacht or a Rolls Royce or a big mansion like Johnny Brown. But I do love you with all my heart. And the girl thinks about it for a second. And then she replies, you know, I love you with all my heart too. But tell me more about this Johnny Brown. <laughs> She's divided in her heart. Listen, when we hear the word... The heart of the person that's overcome with love for riches and the things of this world is not a believing heart. The heart of the person that's constantly consumed by the things of this world is not a heart receptive to the word and to the gospel. Matthew 6, 24, a verse that we're familiar with. No one can serve two masters, for either he will love the one, or for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Many start out great. It looks like a genuine Christian. It looks like maturity in Christ. And then a love for the world strangles out any glimmer that they ever truly knew Christ. John 8, 31, Jesus says that those that continue and remain in him are really his disciples. So therefore, in this group, those consumed by the world are proving themselves to not be true, but false disciples. There's no real surrender to Christ. Danny Akin in his commentary says, They find more pleasure in cash than in Christ, more pleasure in their cravings than in their Creator. How's our hearing today, friends? How are we hearing the Word? Fourth soul, the soul of some hearts is fruitful. Look at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soul are the ones who hear the Word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, fold, and a hundredfold. Finally, Christ gets to the soul that bears and brings forth fruit. And this soul is the seed of God's word does not bounce off of it like the hardened surface of some. The, the seed of God's word doesn't momentarily flourish, but then shrivel under adversity. The seed of this is, is, is planted into this soul is not divided by competing desires. It's not strangled out by a love for the world. No, this, this heart is one that is cultivated and prepared in its good soul. And God's word takes root in it and it produces fruit. It produces a harvest. What kind of harvest? What does this mean that it begins to produce fruit? Well, first, it's a harvest of character. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Friends, you want to know if your heart is a good soul heart? What's your fruit look like? What's the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you evidencing these types of characteristics? Joy and peace and patience. Goodness and gentleness and faithfulness, self-control. Are those things that would characterize your life? Second, I think there's another type of harvest that it's talking about, a harvest of good works. You see this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, if if our heart's that good soul that's receptive to the Word of God, then we'll see this type of fruit. Fruit in our character and fruit in our works. Fruit in the way we live, the way we love. I think a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. That's what Christ is demonstrating to us. It doesn't make sense, according to Christ, to be a Christian, but one that's not bearing fruit. Because the soul is receptive of the Word, it will produce a crop. John 15, 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're not producing fruit, then friends, it's evidence that we're not in and abiding in the word. And his word's not being planted into a fertile heart. So as we conclude, how do we take a text like this and, and apply it, live it out in our lives? What does this look like daily? Well, friends, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never experienced new birth, if you've never experienced regeneration of the heart where you've surrendered your life to him and he saved you and he's become your Lord, then the Bible tells us that by Jesus' death, the Bible demonstrates the Son of God died on a cross. And that shows us a couple things. It shows us, one, that God loves us. You were loved by the creator of the universe so much so that his Son died in your place. But, friends, Jesus' death shows us something else, too. It shows us that you're in need of an atoning blood sacrifice for your sins. So if you've never experienced the new birth, then that's what the Word is communicating. That's what the Gospel, that's what this, this message that Christ is communicating says to us. That Jesus died on the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven and we could live with Him eternally. So if you don't know Him this morning, that's the Word for you this morning. Is that being communicated to you? Is the Spirit of God communicating that to your heart this morning? What's the soul of your heart look like this morning? Our faith is based on the Word of God. And so hearing is vitally connected. I've been saying all morning, how's your hearing? How is your hearing? But friends, I know that for most of us in this room this morning, we don't have a problem physically hearing. You're hearing me. But the question this morning is, are we, are we taking in the Word of God? Are we receiving it? Or do we tune out the Word? Do we tune out Scripture and the Gospel? Are you dependent upon it? Like your life depends on everything that God has said in His Word. Is it vitally necessary for your life and well-being? That's what it means to be receptive of the Word, that you are desperate for it. Akin, again in his commentary, says some really good things, and he says this Be greedy for the word. Go after it, grab hold of it, and don't let it go. Like a starving beggar who's found bread, seize it with all your might and cherish it for its life sustaining food that it is. Do you have that kind of attitude towards God's word? Not just receptive of it, but, but longing for it, desiring his word. If you're already a believer, if you know Christ and you've experienced new birth, be hungry for his word. Be hungry and consume it. Receive it. But I think there's another application for us this morning. If we are his, if we are found in Christ, then sow the seed. See Christ's example here in the text and sow the seed. Notice that there's there's no restriction in this parable. There's no limit put on how much seed is being sown or how often you should sow it. Sow the seed of the word. Share the gospel. Because of the infinite power and potential of God's word, the fact that God's word has the potential to change lives and transform hearts. Be faithful sowers and trust the word to do the work. I loved I loved seeing pictures this weekend from our teens missions weekend. And them sharing the gospel. Praying with people in Walmart parking lot. Sharing the gospel with folks. Handing out gospel tracts that are filled with the word. Why? Because the word is powerful. And has potential to change eternal destinations. Be faithful sowers. Wherever you're at. I love that Ben was teaching our, our students this weekend. And he's, he's never had an opportunity to really teach before. And he's, he's anxious about it. He said, brother, just teach the Word. The Word is powerful to transform hearts. That's what God's given it to us for. It, it conforms us, regenerates us, and makes us into the image of Christ. Share the gospel this week with someone. Be a faithful sower. Devour and love the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That in your grace and goodness, you didn't leave us in the dark. You didn't leave us wondering about a creator, a God who would love us. God, you've revealed yourself in the word. Help us to never take that for granted. Help us this morning, every room, every person in this room, every heart in this room to be receptive souls. God, that we would be desperate. That we would be hungry for your word and that God when we see it when we read it when we hear it taught that God we would search our hearts and ask God how are you trying to transform me what are you trying to do in my heart as a result of this word help us to love the gospel and never grow tired of hearing it Father I pray as we respond in these moments that you would work in our hearts that even now you'd be about the business of cultivating hearts and tilling soil that the gospel might produce fruit